Good morning. This time I want to be able to dismiss the kids to head downstairs. Special shout out to uh, Walker Ryan, who's wearing Wookiee pajamas, probably my personal favorite. As Micah mentioned, this is the first Sunday in Lent. We are in a new sermon series. And um, the end of this sermon is, is basically is going to be a description of walking on water. And I'd say normally uh, sermons will be about, like, how do you make it to the boat? Or, like, what happens if you're in the boat? Or what happens after you've not, you know, like fallen down or like uh, you've, you've walked on water, so now what? It's these sort of things that we can kind of grab hold of in some way. Uh, this is not one of those things, really. This is, uh, is not going to leave you maybe with like action steps, but I believe that it is profoundly important for our faith. Uh, I'm not going to claim it's easy or I'm going to do it well, but I invite you to wrestle with it and to stay with me and maybe... Maybe the Lord can show up. Uh, so with that in mind, will you pray with me? Lord God, this morning I ask that it, my words not be my good news, but yours this morning. Where I speak treat cheap grace, transform it into the authority of your word by the time it reaches anyone's ear where people hear cheap grace, incarnate it with your love. Open our eyes, our hearts, to believe you have come to proclaim the gospel, not only to us, but to all people. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. At our last men's night uh, at Colin Edwards' house, Joe gave a prompt of where... um, like just a little bit of like, how did you come to faith, or were there relationships where where that happened? And uh, I'll be honest, what came out of that was one of the most vulnerable moments in Kairos history, at least in my opinion, uh, because Eric Ragone shared that he came to faith when a young life speaker overdubbed a video of Jesus to the song by Brian Adams. Everything I do, I do for you. (laughs) Vulnerability like I've rarely seen to admit uh, such a thing. You know that song? It begins with, look into my eyes. (laughs) Robin Hood. It's a confession I'm still continuing to process. Uh, And and so while I'm, I'm shocked that the spirit would stoop to that level, uh, I'm confident it wouldn't have been as effective uh, on Eric if the chorus was, everything I do, I do for the guy next to you. It it wouldn't have been the same. Uh, Because grace does not come alive uh, by us becoming convinced that it's true for someone else. It, it, It comes alive by God revealing that it's true for us. Of course, the gospel is not exclusively personal. It will turn us outward. 
Grace transforms us to love other people well, but what does that turning is Jesus becoming Lord of our own life first. And as I mentioned in the order of service, um, uh, and you can read it later, Jesus, he begins his ministry in Luke by, by stepping up uh, to the pulpit, and he reads Isaiah 61, and he says, uh, I've come to bring good news for the poor, to release the captives, to bind uh, up the brokenhearted, this amazing uh, prophetic witness. And he ends by saying, and today that has been fulfilled. And it's just an amazing moment, but, but everyone who hears it is kind of like, gives a shoulder shrug. Eh, eh, okay, cool. Good to know. They're not that into it. And I think it's because uh, it isn't personal for them. They say, well, that would be good, but I'll hold out and see if it happens. It's, it's not something that is truly feels like good news for them yet, and so it's not transformative for them. And so over this season of Lent, we're going to explore who Jesus is. And we're going to use that Isaiah 61 passage to kind of help us move through it. And, and we're going to try to see what the good news means and how that is good news for ourselves and how believing that it's good news for ourselves will help us to see that it's good news for other people. And this morning, the proclamation we're going to begin with is how Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. And so my question is, does that sound like good news to you? Does that sound like good news to you? We're going to look at that through a story in Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. Listen for God's word for each of us this morning. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every few years a person makes national news because despite that person having worked in some sort of low-income job for most of their life, one day they, they surprise everyone by giving away just an enormous amount of money. I remember this woman uh, in Mississippi who she had to give up school when she was in sixth grade and she cleaned clothes her entire life. And, and then at the age of 87, she stepped forward and donated $150,000 to Southern Miss to set up this college scholarship fund for African-American students. And it's just an amazing story. It's in the New York Times, incredible stuff. And stories like that, they deserve every bit of attention and praise they get, and we're rightly challenged and, and inspired by them. We love hearing them. But this story in Mark, this is not one of those stories. This widow, she only gives 
away a few pennies. Her story isn't making it in any newspapers. It's not going viral. This woman is poor. And she's poor in the ways most people are poor, where their lives are uninteresting and have no impact on the world around them. This is the kind of woman we wouldn't even hear about when she passes away because she wouldn't be able to afford an obituary. Hers is an invisible life. Invisible, of course, if not for Jesus. Because it just so happens that on this particular day, Jesus decides to sit in front of the temple and watch people put in money and provide commentary. Which, as a side note, has to be the most intimidating scene in the entire Bible. I, I would be nervous if one of you did that, let alone Jesus, the Christ. Like, I literally, I forgot my wallet today. If Jesus had shown up, I would be like, hey, I, this is not normal. It's the wallet. I forgot it. It's, I'll write a check later, I promise. But as nerve-wracking as that would be, Jesus' decision to spend his day this way is honestly just as surprising. Because at this point, in the Gospel of Mark, he's already in Jerusalem. His life is increasingly in danger. In a couple of days, he'll be arrested and killed. And yet, there Jesus is, choosing to just hang out on the stoop casually watch the offering plate go by. Why does the Lord do this? Well, because His gospel is good news for the poor, of course. Jesus said from the very beginning that His transformative grace will resonate with people many of us do not notice or respect. And since Jesus is the living, breathing gospel, His life is naturally going to intersect with those kinds of people. He's not just there to prove a point and he isn't trying to romanticize being poor. His goal isn't even to call out people who give out large gifts. He doesn't say really anything other than that they give them. Instead, Jesus is simply embodying the gospel. He is the good news, and so his nature is to bring forth a culture where no one is invisible. And that begins with and is most clear for the people the world treats as invisible. This is who he is, and this is how it comes about. Jesus notices this woman because despite what the world assumes, God has claimed her worth as immeasurable. Her faith delights him. He's enjoying it. And so obviously, this is good news for the poor. We can clearly see how Jesus' presence lifts this widow up. We do know who she is, and it leads us to honor her. But let me ask you again. Does it feel like good news to you? Personally, I struggle to see how this gospel could ever be good news for me in the same way as it is for her. 
If this is what Jesus' presence lifts up, I wonder and I struggle to name what parts of me would be included in that lifting up. After all, did you know a person is in the top 1% of worldwide wage earners if they make more than $32,000 a year? Not top, top 1%. The richest of the rich. And so it's like, I'm glad Jesus is bringing grace to the poor, but I am not poor. And honestly, I wouldn't even know how to become poor in a way that would also love the people in my life well. I don't know how to do it. It's, it I, I could do certain things, and then I'd wonder what, how I'd be providing for my kids, or what it would mean for this or for that who I'd have to start relying on. I feel like the, the choices I have made, the context that I was born into, the responsibilities, not all bad, some very faithful responsibilities that I have taken on, all of it, will not allow me to receive the grace, receive the gospel the way that this woman does. And it leaves me pretty insecure. When I really think about it, I, I feel a good bit of shame around it. Unsure of the way forward. In the end, as I wrestled with this truth the last few days, what I realized was so bothersome about this story is it made me feel invisible. A poor person who has no reason to feel poor. Not saying this is how everyone feels. I'm not saying this is how you feel, or this is like the number one topic that's been weighing on your mind. You're like, if only we could talk about this, then I would be better. Like, this is the thing that, that racks your brain or something like this. But I think that the way that this text speaks to me personally, I think whether it speaks to you that way or not, I think it touches on a topic that many of us wrestle with when it comes to how we receive the Lord's good news. And it's around this that I want to end. I've obviously been unpacking the topic around our text, but this is how I'd put the issue or the repercussions more generally. I'd say it like this. I'd say, we are not normally people who open ourselves up to being judged by God. And that produces a faith that is self-critical and never good enough. The logic we follow to get there, it makes sense that God is the God of grace, and so it feels wrong to dwell on his judgment. I mean, the issue we struggle with isn't uh, feeling too worthy. I rarely go to lunch with someone and someone's like, man, my problem is that I'm feeling like I've got it all together. No, the thing is that we don't feel worthy enough. That's our issue. And so we become people who are all grace, all the time. Any glimpse of sin, we might even admit it, but it's just a heads up to turn very quickly back to grace. The only problem with this way of thinking is that we deserve to be judged. Put another way, we were made to be in relationship with Jesus, and Scripture could not be more clear that what Jesus does 
is judge. That is one of his roles. And so without judgment in our life, we are missing something that we were meant to have. We're missing something. We're missing out on a part of the Lord. Without God's judgment, there is something undone in our life, and whether we name it or not, I believe that we feel that. We feel like something's missing. And so what do we try to do to make up for it? We judge ourselves. We judge ourselves. We take the same path I took when I first started reflecting on our Scripture. Our relationship with the Lord becomes our avenue to notice our flaws and how we need to get better, and it's the kind of faith that becomes defined by guilt and defensiveness. But my favorite theologian, Karl Barth, he'll have none of it. He says faith is not about using the example of Jesus to like tweak our way to perfection. Faith is to claim that we have encountered the living God. End of story. Bart, he lampoons the eye that our idea that our private judgment about our lives, no matter how right they may be, could ever lead to faith. God does not reveal his presence in order to make us feel guilty or help us recognize our mistakes. Instead, Bart says, God comes into our life and his presence reveals how we cannot claim the grace that has already been given to us. That's kind of a mind warp. I'm going to say it one more time. God's presence in our lives, when the good news first comes into our lives, it reveals how we cannot claim the grace that has already been given to us. What Bart describes would be like realizing we were created to be golfers, right? Like that's that's what we were made to do. And in Jesus, we've been made perfect golfers. Perfect. But we realize that we're unable to go to the golf course. We can't golf. And this is how we encounter God. It is grace wrapped in judgment. This is our context. This is where we are when we hear Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor. We know that it's gospel and it sounds like gospel, but we're just not sure how to get there. And that's by no means fun, but, but that's our situation. And what I want you to see, do you see how ridiculous and irrelevant our normal response would be if that's how we began to see how God has come to us? Pretending we avoid God's judgment by listing off our personal thoughts of how we would like to improve? Going over how we need to be less this and more that? It's like talking about how we need to improve our golf game when one, Jesus has already made us perfect golfers, and two, our problem isn't that we uh, need to be better golfers, it's that we can't golf. That's our problem, and yet we're listing off the ways we want to change our swing. It's insane. God's presence proclaims that we are forgiven. The problem isn't what we need to do better. The problem is we can't grasp that good news is our way of life. Which means the only truthful response, 
is to acknowledge that we are people judged by God and at his mercy. Even in the Lord's good news, we are at his mercy. We are not simply justified and then it's on us. Every step of the way, we are at God's mercy. And friends, as ridiculous as it may sound, this is where I believe the scandal of the gospel starts to become transformative for us. Because if we're willing to submit to the Lord's judgment, something miraculous happens. We will come to see we are people, yes, who have been judged by God, but we are still alive. That somehow the Lord's judgment has become grace. That we have been brought to a new place, and in that place, God has actually invited us to respond, to witness to what has just happened, to proclaim who we have just encountered. And as we do just that, we will finally realize that we can abandon the self-judgment of what we are uh, or what we are not. That if God says, who did you just meet? What has just happened? We wouldn't say, well, I'm too rich or I'm too poor. We would simply proclaim the good news that you are the Son of God. Our only truthful response will be to take our whole lives, everything we have, and proclaim, Jesus, you are the Lord. That is what I have witnessed. And finally, in that place, there will be no daylight between who Jesus is for the widow and who Jesus is for us. For we will have gone through the refining fire of judgment and come to believe through grace our invisibility, it has been given flesh because we have become witnesses to the living God. We have received the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, Judge my words. Have mercy on me so that what might remain in a, is a declaration and an invitation for all of us to claim that you are Lord. By your refining fire, take us to a new place so that we may become witnesses to how you have led us from death to life. That you are indeed our God, a God of grace, which is a message of good news for all people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.